This is Morning Air. This is about educating a people that for 40 years haven't been given the full truth. It's time now to speak the truth. When you do things to the best of your ability, keeping Jesus number one and doing everything you possibly can for His glory, that's a winner. You are called to make the light of Christ shine brightly in the world. Bringing the light of Christ to start your day. This is Morning Air with John Morales on Relevant Radio. It's Friday, January 14th, 2022. Good morning and welcome back to the second hour of Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn Leverance. Thanks so much for joining us coast to coast across America on the Relevant Radio Network and the Relevant Radio app. On Fridays, I always make it a point to remind you to remember the passion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Friday is also the traditional day dedicated to the sacred heart of Jesus. Once again, I want to encourage you, if you can, spend just a a few moments. It doesn't have to be a long time. Spend some time in front of the Blessed Sacrament today, meditating on the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to check in with my partner, uh, Glenn Leverance. Glenn, what's the big story this morning? Well, we mentioned a little bit about it in the headlines moments ago here, but the filibuster rule in the Senate, which requires a 60-vote majority, not a simple majority to pass most legislation, has been in effect for well over 100 years, and whichever party has been mostly in charge has wished that wasn't there sometimes, but over time both parties are in charge and uh, need to play by those same rules. Democrats would like to uh, change some federal voting regulations and have the federal government more in charge of uh, how voting is done at the state level. And uh, many Republican states have uh, set up rules that some Democrats don't like. So that's what's behind the big push from the Biden administration to want to change even the Senate voting rules to try and overturn this. It's uh, being touted as, as voting rights, but it's just a disagreement over over voting in, in some states and uh, wanting the federal government to, to have that say. There are two Democrats now with that split Senate at 50-50 and a tie-breaking vote, of course, to be cast if needed ever by uh Vice President Kamala Harris, but uh, two of those Democrats, Kirsten Sinema and uh, West Virginia's Joe Manchin, have said they are not going to vote to end the filibuster, and uh, and here we sit. So that's seen as a defeat for the president, John. Absolutely. It's been a tough week uh, for the president. Uh, in fact, uh, Democratic uh, Senator uh, Kristen Sinema of Arizona rejected the move to eliminate the filibuster. Uh, she had some strong words on the Senate uh, floor yesterday. She she was quite uh, impassioned, uh, going on to say that eliminating the 60-vote threshold uh, simply guarantees that we lose a critical tool that we need to safeguard our democracy from threats in the years to come. So uh, it's it's great uh, to hear her words, uh, trying to be a unifying force in a very divided Senate. Eliminating the 60-vote threshold on a party line with the thinnest of possible majorities to pass these bills that I support will not guarantee that we prevent demagogues from winning office. Indeed, some who undermine the principles of democracy have already been elected. Rather, eliminating the 60 tool that we need to safeguard our democracy from threats in the years to come. It is clear that the two party strategies are not working not for either side, and especially not for the country. Glenn, strong words uh, by Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. 
Strong words indeed, and uh, these coming from a Democrat, uh, a third party trying to uh, make a little bit of a difference. They're Democrats really uh, pressing, even though they have the White House right now, the Senate, and the uh, and the, the House of Representatives, uh, seeing things looking a little dim for the midterm elections this fall, and so that is why they really, really want to try and, uh, and change some rules to get uh, some voting changes in uh, this year. Well, we continue to, to pray for our leaders, to pray for unity in our country, to pray for our nation. Thanks so much, Glenn. Hey, sure thing, John. We um, begin every hour in prayer, giving thanks uh, to our Lord through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of the unborn and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of relevant radio, pray for us. And we always invoke the Holy Spirit when we pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. As we do every morning, our power scripture from the playbook of life is from 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. As Catholic Christians, we need to always be prepared to give a reasoned explanation for what we believe and why we believe it. There is no doubt there's going to be situations where someone comes up to you and says, uh, why do you believe that Mary is the mother of God or that the Holy Eucharist is more than just a mere symbol? We need to be ready to answer, but to do it with charity and clarity, with gentleness and respect uh, from whomever might challenge us about our Catholic faith. Know your faith, know what scripture, tradition, and the catechism teaches, but always do it with respect. And we always pray with great confidence. Jesus, I trust in you. A number, if you want to be part of the program, 888-914-9149. Now, here in this month of January, we remember that since Roe v. Wade in 1973, nearly 63 million babies' lives have been lost to legalized abortion in our nation. Next Friday, January 21st, in Washington, D.C., tens of thousands, could be hundreds of thousands of pro-lifers will converge on our nation's capital for the annual March for Life. How is the pending Dobbs case in the Supreme Court motivating the pro-life movement, knowing that Roe v. Wade could be overturned very soon? Listen to part of the March for Life segment from my documentary film called 40. Every year since 1974, Hundreds of thousands of pro-life advocates attend the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. I just feel so happy and, and uplifted to be around everybody who has you know, the same ideals, who wants to see life and wants to imagine a future without abortion. It's really awesome, <laughs> awe-inspiring to see Hundreds of thousands, literally, of young people marching in D.C., marching on the West Coast, marching across the country, going to rallies. And it's because they believe that human life is nothing more important than human life. There's no greater cause to fight for. 
it's all about the youth. It's all about us. This is such an energetic and vibrant generation. And for us to be here, it just kind of goes to show that we, we are the pro-life generation. We're going to end abortion. The third of my generation is now missing. Um, and people that um, could have been my best friends or people that I could have changed my life or changed this world are no longer here. Um, so it's personal and I can't ignore the fact that it's, it's going on and it's been going on for 40 years. I need to do something about it. Like I can't just stand there and like not do anything about these people, these babies who are being killed for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Every generation has something that, that can define them. And right now, this generation, right now, I believe what will define them is this is the generation that will end abortion. And joining us now for more perspective on the importance of this year's 2022 March for Life is our regular contributor and friend, Mary Helen Fiorito. Mary is an attorney, public speaker, and commentator on issues involving Catholic Church teachings, administration, and religious freedom. She holds the position of the Cardinal Francis George Fellow at both the Ethics and Public Policy Center and the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Good morning, Mary. It's so good to be with you once again. Thanks so much for joining us for the first time here in the new year. Yes, good morning, John, and good morning to all your listeners. Just listening to that clip from your documentary got me excited for next week already. It's it's going to be a wonderful gathering this year. I know the feeling, uh, Mary. Uh, even though I produced and directed that film and it's been out now for a few years, uh, it, it gets me fired up. It gets me pumped up to hear all those young people that are going to be uh, at the march uh, this year once again. And uh, it's very exciting always. But this year I think is going to be a little bit special with uh, especially everything that's going on with the, with the Dobbs case, uh, the anticipation that Roe v. Wade could be overturned. Uh, your thoughts uh, on the importance of this year's march, perhaps more than any other march, uh, in our lifetime. Well, you know, that it's, it's funny you should phrase it that way, John, because I was talking to a friend who doesn't go every year, but has gone a number of times, and I said, are you, are you going to go on Friday? He said, are you kidding me? I'm not going to miss this one. This is going to be the last one. So I said, well, that's, <laughs> that's optimism. And wow. we were joking because, you know, it's, uh, people always say, why do you have this thing in January? It's held on January 22nd or the closest business day to January 22nd because that was the day the Supreme Court handed down Roe versus Wade and Roe's companion case, Doe versus Bolton. But we're hoping with when Dobbs is handed down, it's likely going to be sometime in June, we can then move the march to a warmer warmer month of the year than January. Um, but, you know, that, that just shows you the thousands of people who show up every year, despite the fact that it's often very cold, snowing sometimes, and yet still people come. And I've, I've just always um, attributed that to the tenacity of, of the pro-life movement, to the, the, the patient perseverance of the, the, you know, thousands of people and groups and organizations and parishes that have hoped and prayed and believed all these years. And, um, you know, those prayers didn't go unheard, and everyone is just, um, I just think, extra excited to be there this year because this really could be the year. Absolutely. And I know you, you've been to our nation's capital on, uh, many times. Are, are you going to get a chance to go this time around? Oh, I am. I'll be there pretty much all of next week. And, you know, unfortunately, this new Omicron variant of COVID is um, canceling some of the events. Some of the bigger events that would have been indoors um, have been either shifted or canceled. So I've had a couple of speaking engagements that I'm not going to do anymore, but a couple of others that I've picked up. So uh, I'll be there all of next week. Just so looking forward to seeing 
um, old friends. You know, when you, you march along it, with that group of people, I know you've felt this, and this isn't an exaggeration. You just feel like you're surrounded by saints. I mean, it's so joyful. Everyone is so kind. I always joke that I could, like, drop a dollar bill on the ground, and some teenager who was there would find it and chase me down and give it back to me. I mean, that's just the kind of people who are at the march. Um, it's, it's so uh, edifying to be with so many people who love life, who are respectful of other people's lives, who care. You know, and again, the other thing about the march, too, you can go through people don't throw trash on the ground. Everybody cleans up after themselves. Um, I remember walking along and one of the, you know, they do have, of course, protection and the park police are out that sort of thing. And we were chit-chatting with one of them on a horse, some officer on a horse. And he said, you know, of all the events, I have to work like this all year. He said, you people are the only ones that always pick up after yourselves. He said, we barely have to pick up a gum wrapper. Um, So that's the kind of crowd it is. It's safe. It's joyful. Um, You always see wonderfully funny signs. That's one of my favorite parts of the march is I bring my cell phone with me and try to take pictures of the best signs from the march because some of them are very, very clever. Um, And then just, you know, lots of the the religious diversity that's there. Um, Also, again, the diversity just of the groups. You have pro-life secular humanists, you have Catholics, you have Greek Orthodox, you have, you know, Lutherans for life. It, you know, a lot of people associate this with sort of being a big Catholic march, but that's not the case. It's very, very diverse. Well, you really uh, touched my heart when you, you mentioned that you never know who you're going to be marching next to. It could be a saint, and immediately the first thing that came to mind, I remember vividly marching for a good portion of the march uh, in one of the marches uh, with the late, great, uh, you know, father of the pro-life movement, Joe Scheidler. I mean, yeah. what, what a joy it was to march side-by-side side with the great Joe Scheidler, uh, the right. founder of the Pro-Life Action League. Can you imagine <laughs> how excited Joe would be to be able to go to this march? Yes. Well, you know, it's, I mean, this, I feel a little bit like you're from Chicago, so you, like me, you understand this, like when the Cubs won the World Series. And I remember watching with my daughter, who was five at the time, the night they won, and she looked at me, I mean, completely unprompted, and said, oh, Mommy, I wish Grandpa was here to see this. And I started to cry. You know, I mean, and so many people had that feeling, the moment people had been waiting for all those years, and your, your heart kind of first goes to the people who've already left, right, who've already left and, and gone to the Lord. But, um, you know, I said, honey, he's seeing it. He's seeing it from the best seats in the house, so please don't worry about Grandpa. But, uh, you know, I'm going to feel the same way, too, in, in June, that, you know, Joe won't see it. And Nellie Gray, who founded the March for Life, she won't see it. But, um, you know, they, like I said, they have the best seats in the house. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this evokes uh, memories of uh, why I was even motivated to uh, to direct and produce and create the the 40th of my member um, being you know motivated by the idea that one day we're going to turn on the the five o'clock n- n- national network news and uh, one of the network anchors is going to make the announcement uh, of a historic event Roe v Wade landmark abortion case has been overturned and I envisioned this years and years ago and uh, we're getting closer and closer Mary yes and you know I was just kind of thinking too. I, I hope that people have been saving their memorabilia, you know, kind of really reflecting back if these are older people who have gone to the march all these years. You know, the march was founded by, by Nellie Gray, who I mentioned, but she was at her kitchen table with six other people, um, Eileen Vogel and Bill Devlin and Peggy Jaycox, and they came up with this idea for the march. It was these seven people. And um, there's, there's a company that's working on a documentary about this called The First Seven Steps for the First Seven People. 
um, who did this in Nellie Gray's living room. You just see, you know, the power of committed people. They don't have to have, you know, um, a lot of money. They don't have to have a lot of influence or clout, as we would say in Chicago, but they put together what has become the greatest consistent human rights march in the United States. I mean, no other march does this every single year. There have been big marches, right, civil rights marches, um, of course, everyone would know from their history classes, but this is a march that no matter the weather, the, the, the political outlook has, has never stopped in, in all these, you know, four, four, four score decades. And um, it's really incredible to think back and see how God used that little mustard seed, you know, of the kitchen table meeting and turned it into this massive march that still continues to this day. Absolutely. I, I was blessed to be able to meet uh, uh, two of those seven, uh, Nellie Gray and Eileen Vogel. In fact, I remember giving Nellie a little uh, a kiss on the cheek, just an appreciation. I was so excited to meet her for what she has done and what she did. Uh, she's no longer with us, but uh, these are, are really true pro-life giants. I want to invite our listeners, if you've been to the March for Life or any of the other marches across our country and you want to uh, share uh, with us your experience, uh, or perhaps Perhaps have a comment for marrying Helen Helen Fiorito here with us. Uh, you can give us a call triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. That's triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. There's so many reasons uh, why we all come together and march. Uh, how would you put it into words? Why we march for life together? Well, you know, somebody has to be uh, a voice and a presence for people who can't speak for themselves. You know, you have an someone has to go and be there to let our government know, to let our elected representatives know, but to let the world know that they matter, that their lives matter, that you might not be able to see them at, when they're unborn, but those are human beings that matter, and someone has to go to be present for them. And, you know, it, it makes me uh, think of, you know, David Delayden, you know, who, of course, went undercover into Planned Parenthood and exposed um, their baby body part um, selling. That's just so, I mean, it's so barbaric. I can hardly even get the words out of my mouth. But I asked him once, I had the privilege of meeting him, and I asked him, you know, I could not have stood there and looked at those little baby body parts, had, had, you know, in the trays as they were negotiating prices for them. And I said, how did you do that? And he said, you know, um, someone, he, he quoted St. John Paul II, and he said, at least for that moment in that room, I was a person who loved them. And, and told them that they mattered. And I was there to witness to them. And uh, I'd love to go back and find that John Paul quote, which I, I, I still don't have, but I'll have to, if I can track David Delighton down, I'll find it. But we're there to love those people. And, and, if, and maybe we're the only ones, maybe they're the only ones in that baby short little life that, that did love them and did think of them and did pray for them. And, you know, now they're, they're in a place where they pray for us. But it is a way that you can show, you know, some people say, well, what can I do? You know, I don't have a lot of money or, you know, I'm really not good at counseling women to, you know, but, you know, everybody can go and just be present. Sometimes it's just being present that matters. And that's why it's so important to go. Every Catholic should have this on the, their Catholic bucket list. It really is. And, and of course, the local marches that people go to are also magnificent. You know, the Walk for Life in San Francisco and then Los Angeles has One Life LA. I mean, it's understandable that people live uh, who live on the opposite side of the country. That's really um, 
you know, not a challenge, but it, it is a sacrifice for people to come that far. But for everybody sort of, you know, east of the Mississippi, it, at least one time in your lifetime, try to go. And it's, it's, you will never regret it. Absolutely. And uh, there are other marches uh, going on uh, in places like uh, Austin. Of course, uh, there was the Chicago March uh, last weekend. Uh, there's uh, marches in Minneapolis. There's literally dozens and dozens, upwards of over 50 marches coast to coast in addition to the the national march. Uh, it never ceases to amaze me how the mainstream media uh, never seems to report uh, accurately on what goes on at the March for Life. Uh, usually you get 50 or 100 uh, pro-choicers uh, pr- promoting the culture of death uh, out in front of the Supreme Court, and they focus on them instead of the hundreds of thousands. There were 650,000 uh, p- people, most of them young people, on hand uh, back in 2013 uh, for the 40th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and yet the media just never tells the full story of how uh, invigorating and how big this march is. Right. Well, we just, you know, we saw that just recently with the Chicago March last weekend, right? That, um, I mean, you could clearly see from some of the shots from the head of the march, and it went back for blocks. There were thousands of people there. Now, was it 200,000? No, but probably around, you know, three to 5,000. There were a lot of people there. And I'm watching ABC News, and they said hundreds of people turned out today for the Chicago March. I saw the same thing. I read the same thing. Oh, my gosh. And then they gave almost equal, if not more, time to the counter-protesters, many of whom were from Antifa. Antifa put out a notice to their, you know, their followers to come and try to disrupt the March to Chicago March for Life. And, you know, these kinds of uh, pieces of the story, like you said, I mean, you're a reporter, you know, are just never shown or never told. And, um, but you know what, we, we will be there. Maybe there will be because of the impending turnover of Roe. Maybe there will be actual media there this year that will, you know, take the time to talk to people. And as you mentioned, that march is just filled with young people. I think half the the participants have to be under the age of 25. I feel like an old fogey now when I go. Um, But uh, it's really the, you know, the the enthusiasm and the chants and the cheers of the young people. And they're all so well behaved. I I have had the privilege of like the last six years, maybe, um, speaking to a large contingent from two Jesuit boys high schools um, that always come in for the march with their president and their principal. And I am just always struck by how kind and polite they are, how the good questions that they have after my presentation, they really want to get involved. Um, they're being well-formed in the Catholic faith and in learning how as young men to defend people who are vulnerable and defenseless. defenseless. It really it makes me very proud to be a Catholic when I'm among people like that. It just really um, invigorates you and wants, it really inspires you to be more serious about your faith and about reaching out, doing the corporal works of mercy for those who can't help themselves. Well, Mary, I, I so much appreciate uh, your perspective. Uh, I do feel that uh, despite uh, the nearly 63 million aborted babies since Roe v. Wade, uh, that the tide is turning and uh, America is uh, turning towards the culture of life uh, in this country. Life is winning in our nation. So I so much appreciate uh, your uh, perspective and and being with us here this morning. Well, it's been my privilege, John, and I, I hope to see a lot of listeners at the march. There you go. Hopefully we will be able to uh, touch base with you while you're in D.C. Uh, thanks Wonderful. so much, uh, Mary. I love that. Thank you, John. Okay, God bless you. Have a great weekend. You too.
Mary Helen Fiorito, and you can find her on Twitter at Mary Fiorito. We need to take a short break when Morning Air continues. We're going to be joined by Catholic author and doctor in clinical psychology, Kevin Voss, to talk about the gaming addiction in kids. Stay with us. This is going to be a really interesting conversation, especially for you parents. There's much more to come as Morning Air continues after this. Today's programming sponsored in part by St. Gregory Recovery Center. More information about their Catholic-centered recovery from substance abuse is available at relevantradio.com slash stgregory. From Maui to Maine, you're listening to Morning Air with John Morales. Coast to coast on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. And welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales, along with Glenn Leverance. Thanks so much for joining us on this Friday morning. Our number, if you want to be part of the program, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. I want to talk about an issue that's very relevant for many parents across our nation, and especially for this reporter, the parent of a 14-year-old son. During the last two years with the COVID-19 pandemic and with all the Zooming at home, uh, instead of going to school in person with all the various lockdowns, many children and teens across America have spent even more time playing video games to socialize with friends since they couldn't get together in person. With screens uh, virtually everywhere you look, uh, controlling a child's screen time can be very challenging. How will you know if your children are addicted to screens or video games? Uh, For example, check out this trailer for a very popular kids game called Minecraft. Let's go to a place where everything is made of blocks. Where the only limit is your imagination. Let's go wherever you want to go. Climb the tallest mountains. Venture down to the darkest caves. Build anything you want, day or night, rain or shine, because this is the most significant sandbox you'll ever set foot in. Build a majestic castle, invent a new machine, or take a ride on a roller coaster. Play with friends, build your own little community, protect yourself with the strongest armor that you can craft, and fight off the dangers of the night. No one can tell you what you can or cannot do. With no rules to follow, this adventure, it's up to you. Joining us now is Dr. Kevin Voss to discuss uh, gaming addiction in children and teens. Dr. Voss obtained his doctorate in clinical psychology from Adler University in Chicago with an internship and dissertation at the SIU School of Medicine in Springfield, Illinois. He's taught at schools, including the University of Illinois at Springfield and Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Voss uh, has also written more than 20 Catholic books, including Memorize the Faith and how to think like Aquinas. Good morning, Dr. Voss. Great to be with you for the first time. Thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk about this very important issue for all parents. Yes, and thanks for having me on. Uh, it's, it's quite my honor, and it is a very important issue, I'm sure, as any parent uh, listening you know, can agree. 
Well, I tell you, you, you'll appreciate this. I actually got a little bit of help from my 14-year-old son, Joseph Dominic, in preparation to talk to you this morning, uh, doctor, uh, because uh, I'm just not plugged into all these games that the young kids are, are playing with the, these days. And so I asked him, hey, what are the more popular games? And uh, the first one that he shot off was uh, it was Minecraft. So this is what we heard there at, at the beginning. But I guess the big question is, uh, it, what is your perspective? on uh, all these games that are now available uh, for young children and, and teenagers. Do you think that uh, all this screen time is uh, damaging our youth? Uh, yes, yes, and I appreciated that, that Minecraft uh, intro there. I had not heard that myself, but boy, there's so much to possibly pull from in there. But yeah, you know, th- this certainly is a big, a big problem. Uh, you know, and like you, my, my boys now are 29, I think, and 34. So I'm thinking back to when they were in around that 14 year old age and what it was like. Because these, these games have been around since about the, the early 1970s. And they have such a powerful effect on us. I can even remember the first time I, I saw them myself. Had two younger cousins. We walked in, down to their basement, and this fascinating thing was going on. A little uh, white ball was bouncing across the screen at a very slow pace, and it was called Pong one of the very first of these games in the early 70s. So I grew up basically without them, didn't play them at all. But by the time you know, my own kids come along in the 80s or 90s, boy, you know, now we have all these different systems that play a huge variety of games. And as the years go by, they become more and more fascinating, more and more realistic, but then also more and more you know, potentially addicting. So to kind of give a general summary point, uh, yeah, not that they're entirely evil. There can be some benefits from certain proper and limited uses of screen time, but there's great risk that they can become too addictive, take away too much time and energy from our children, causing real uh, physical, mental, and social problems. Yeah, things are a lot uh, different uh, here in, in 2022 than it was uh, when we were youngsters. In fact, uh, none of these games existed uh, when I was a kid. I remember playing foosball one Christmas and staying up uh, most of the night uh, after opening up uh, the Christmas present with a, a great uh, foosball game. But uh, we didn't have any of this stuff. So this is something that is really much in play for, for all parents uh, of young children and even uh, teenagers more than ever before. Yeah, it sure is. You know, there's so many dimensions we could get into, but just one just comes to mind from that Minecraft entry you played. That it talked about it as, as a sandbox. You know, and you talked about playing foosball. My memories go back to playing, you know, physical, actual ping pong on a table instead of on, on a screen. And that's one element of these games. You know, at least with the sandbox, with foosball, with ping pong, you're actually using your body in real space. You know, three-dimensional motion. You're moving back and forth. You're creating things with your own hands. And that's one of the dangers of these games that is just, you know, so much focused on these particular screens, using almost nothing, you know, but, but the kids put their thumbs and their fingers. So they really, you know, if we do them too much, they kind of dehumanize us and can disconnect us from the, the broader, uh, more intricate, uh, appropriate uses of our bodies. Obviously, uh, in the last uh, nearly two years during the pandemic, uh, this issue is more relevant than ever before because uh, kids, uh, they, they can't see their buddies. They can't see their friends. And so uh, they, they start playing these games. And before you know it, they're hooked. Yeah, that's, that's true. You know, and there can be some, you know, some positive use from the games if it's within particular time limits. If, if they're not playing these games instead of doing their homework, instead of doing their chores, Instead of, you know, interacting with their friends, interacting with their siblings uh, and their parents. So that is a real risk, especially uh, in this time. You know, I, I've 
just recently brushed up on some of the research articles on the video games and the phones and internet and screen in general. And a lot of these studies that were kind of showing alarming numbers in terms of how much time kids were spending on them, some of these studies came out before even the COVID restrictions. So, so yeah, now these numbers are really skyrocketing. So I think this is really a time when we need to be more careful than ever of not saying, you know, throw out all the artificial screen time, throw out virtual reality. No, but, but make sure it is not displacing actual face-to-face reality uh, as, as much as possible. We're joined this morning by uh, Dr. Kevin Voss, a doctor in clinical psychology, Catholic author, speaker, and professor. We're talking about the gaming addiction in our children. Uh, Dr. Voss, uh, can you talk a, a little bit about some of the issues and some of the problems that uh, are caused by too much screen time? Uh, problems, for example, like like obesity and not being able to sleep well, and, and you touched on, uh, you know, not, not getting enough exercise. There's, there's a myriad of things. Uh, things that, that have been linked uh, to uh, too much uh, screen time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this, the, the obesity fact really hit me. I, I'm actually working on a new book on overall health and fitness from childhood, you know, through, through the end of life. And obesity is such a very, you know, growing pandemic, a true pandemic over decades that's really creeped into children now, where it used to be maybe, you know, one child in 20 was obese. Now it's more like one child in four or five. So this kind of factors into it. The kids are there. Of course, they're sedentary. Studies have also showed, though, that when kids are playing these games, they're more likely to want easily handable sweets and, and treats. So they're eating these you know, harmful foods. They're making them more obese. And then what, what triggers often years down the road is, is diabetes, another very serious physical connect, uh, condition that be, can be connected to this. You know, and other physical problems include uh, sleep disturbance, especially if the kids are playing at night. Those games can be so stimulating it can be hard for them to, to wind down. Then, of course, things like eye strain, neck strain, back strain from being in certain uh, you know, positions at one time. And also for some kids, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm an old enough guy that I'm one of those people who can say, well, back in my day when we were kids, we played outside all day long. You know? And it kind of was true, but we didn't have all these distractions that the kids do now. But it is a real danger that, that too much screen time will eat away from physical activity you know, in, in the uh, Outdoors, so lots of physical problems, and then of course there's the the, the potential mental and social issues with uh, a higher distractibility. Kids can find it harder to to focus on more maybe what would seem to be boring things. Focus on you know just reading a book. Uh, it can desensitize some kids to violence, depending on the kind of games they're playing. So, you know, it can make kids more anxious. Some kids will get anxiety if if they can't go play their game when they want to, and a variety of other problems. Uh, depression in some kids do it too often. And then, of course, things like uh, problems with uh, school and, and lower uh, grades and uh, cognitive ability. Dr. Voss, uh, you mentioned violence, uh, which is an issue that obviously uh, here in, in, in Chicago is, uh, is such a, such a, a big uh, deal, you know, with every single weekend uh, young children uh, being shot. Uh, I mean, it's just something that goes on week after week, and it's not just in Chicago, but in so many of our major cities across our country. Do you think there's any connection with the violence that we've seen uh, with the shooting of human life? and no regard for human life and some of the video games my son was telling me about a game called GTA 5 in which they actually you become a thug and you go out and try to see how many people you can shoot and I mean it's outrageous to think that those kind of games could possibly uh, inspire somebody to go out and, and, and shoot at innocent people 
Yeah, yeah. And in things like this, you know, some people say, you know, well, we grew up watching the violent cartoons and everything, and most of us didn't become killers, you know. But but here it's different. We can go into detail a little bit later. But yeah, it, it's it's different, and it, for, especially for some children prone to violence to begin with, for various reasons, it can be a real triggering uh, uh, influence. Well, we want to open up our phone lines uh, for our parents, and this is an issue that I think every parent should be concerned about. If you've had to deal with the issue of gaming with your children, if you have a question or comment for Dr. Voss, a number if you want to be part of our conversation, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. We need to take a, a short break, but we will continue uh, this conversation on uh, gaming and our kids with Professor Dr. Kevin. And Voss, stay with us. There's much more to come on the other side. A familiar tune from the popular kids' game, FIFA 18, that some of our children are very familiar with. Welcome back to Morning Air on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I'm John Morales. Thanks for joining us as we continue our conversation with Dr. Kevin Vost, doctor in clinical psychology, Catholic author, speaker, and professor. And we're talking about the issue of gaming in our children and our young kids and teenagers. Uh, Dr. Vost, uh, thanks so much uh, for being with us. Uh, welcome back. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you. We just played a, a little bit uh, of the theme from uh, a, a yet another uh, popular game. We heard from Minecraft earlier, but this is called FIFA 18. It's uh, it's obviously a soccer game. My son absolutely loves it. He also likes to play uh, the MLB uh, game because he's an athlete, so he likes those kind of games. Uh, but uh, again, uh, how can we find out, how can we know that... Um, it's become an addiction in our children um, when, when they're on uh, these games just a little bit too much. Yeah, yeah. So, some of the signs there, you know, would be that the kids want to keep watching or playing more and more. You know, you realize there's a time creep. And then other things they would normally be starting to fall by the wayside, you know, less physical contact with friends or they're, they're not taking care of themselves the way they should or doing the chores that they would or keeping up their schoolwork. So when they really feel this urge to do it, or they're maybe even they're even constantly talking to you about it. That seems to be all they want to talk about, or or wanting to spend more money to buy additional games. So those are some of the things. When it becomes the kids almost become obsessed by it, and when it starts interfering with other aspects of their lives, because you know one of the key aspects of addiction is that uh, you can't st- stop yourself from something that you come to see is causing negative outcomes in your life. I think parents need to, to watch for that. You know, the old idea that, you know, the traditional and the Catholic view of, of virtue often entails, you know, what's called a golden mean, you know, right in the middle to do a certain behavior that's that's not sinful, of course, at all in itself. But you want to do it in the right measure, you know, definitely not too much in certain cases, not too little. 
So, so when you see the kids are getting beyond the mean, when you're saying, boy, this isn't just a, something for play and recreation now. This is something that's becoming a vital aspect of their life. I think that's when we can, we can tell it's going too far. Uh, d- d- Dr. Vost, uh, are, are there any games um, that come to mind specifically that are, that are really uh, c- considered dangerous, that, that kids really should stay away from, uh, you know, as, as uh, you've been investigating uh, this issue? Have, have you heard of anything that really that uh, our parents' antenna should really go up uh, if their kid is uh, playing it nonstop? Well, yeah, and in general, you know, I'm not an expert on the particulars. I haven't researched particular games in recent years. And, I, you know, I vaguely remember some that my, that my kids played decades ago. But I would say here's a general principle. Yeah, if your kids are playing these games, play, watch them with them. And maybe one thing could be how do they react if you, act, if you ask, you know. That might be a clue if they're hesitant to have you sit down and watch. So I think a general principle would be, you know, we're Catholics. We know we're to strive for virtue and avoid sin. So I think anything that would, would simulate sinful behavior, like you mentioned the game where you're acting like a thug and hunting people down, you know, if any kind of sin is simulated, where that, that's the goal. You're going to do these violent things or, or if the game has an immoral sexual content or other kind of, you know, antisocial content, then, then yeah, that's the kind of game I wouldn't moderate. I, I would shut it down. So I would say that, you know, we need to be aware of the content. And as long as it's, you know, morally good or at least morally neutral, then we're going to moderate it. But I would say the parents should probably be aware of the games, especially their younger children's, are playing to evaluate that content. And if it is something antisocial, something sinful, yeah, we don't want that at all because, you know, we, we're all influenced by our environments. You know, we all tend to become what we think about. So anything that would, you know, that would uh, encourage vice, you know, we don't want to be, the, you know, the vehicles to allow that into our children's lives. Absolutely, because games like FIFA 18, which is a soccer game, and uh, the different videos from MLB, the the baseball games, they seem pretty innocent. But even those games can become a vice if all you do is want to play them morning, noon, and night. That's right. That's right. So there can be positive games that have positive findings, uh, but you'd want to moderate those. But the negative games that are immoral on the face of them, you you would you know you don't want to allow those uh, in your household when you have uh, minors there, and, and you're in charge of that household. Again, any parents, if you want to uh, share with us uh, if this has been an issue in your in your home, uh, gaming with your children, or you, perhaps you might have a, a question uh, for Dr. Vost, uh, our number to be part of the conversation is 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. We have open lines uh, right now, so it'll be easy to get on. Uh, Dr. Vost, can you talk about this uh, idea of hyperarousal? What exactly does that mean? In, in terms of these video games? Uh, yes, you know, they're so intense, it does cause hyperarousal in the brain itself, affecting different brain uh, uh, chemicals. And, and one example is often given that we can probably all, every one of us relate to. If you've really watched an intense movie, you know, or, or a scary movie, and you, you jump, you know, when something happens, you know, we have this capacity to, to really become totally engaged in things we're seeing on screens, or maybe even in a sporting event, you know, a fan will jump up and down out of their seat, you know, in front of the television set. So these games have that kind of effect. They can really, our brains can treat the, what we're seeing as if it's real. And it releases, you know, chemicals within our minds like, like uh, uh, adrenaline, you know, makes the adrenaline pump. And, and myself, I'm a weightlifter, and I'm a fan of watching different lifting competitions and strongman competitions. And there are some people who purposely jack up their adrenaline before a big lift. They'll have someone slap them in the face. They'll, they'll, they'll sniff ammonia, things like this, you know. They're going to really pump up that adrenaline on purpose 
And then they're going to go out there and, and physically exert themselves you know, to the maximum and delete some of that adrenaline. Well, some of these games, it's like they're pumping up our ki- children's adrenaline time after time without any actual physical release. So it's, it's not it's not good for the brain. It, it's damaging for the brain. And again, it makes it hard to, to calm down, which, as we mentioned before, for some kids, this can disturb their uh, sleep patterns. No doubt. Uh, hard to go to, uh, to bed when you're all pumped up from a video game. Uh, Dr. Voss, can you, uh, can you give us uh, some uh, practical advice on how to manage our children's screen time, uh, you know, in, in a really parental way, uh, acknowledging that they're going to want to play a, a little bit, but not to go overboard? Yeah, that's right. Well, one would be to have reasonable time limits that you might work out with a child. It would depend on the circumstances. It doesn't maybe an hour a day for certain people or every other day. It would depend. So work out reasonable time limits. I'd also say have certain times where, where any kind of game or screen is off limits, like a family meal. Now they're all tucked away. So, so different limits like that. And when you are setting up limits, there's a psychological principle called the pre-MAC principle. And it's kind of common sense. Basically, first you work, then you play. So if the kids are going to have to do their homework and play a game, ideally you're going to see they're going to do their homework first and then play the game, you know, as a reward rather than start in that game, find it very, very hard uh, to finish and the homework may not get done. You know, it's common sense that we do like, you know, kids will eat their meal before they eat the dessert, that kind of thing. But I will say, I just did a little research again on this first, the first research on this. And they are researching this idea with kids. One of the, the rewards or reinforcers they used back in the 1950s, mind you, was a time to play pinball machines. So it occurred to me this is kind of like that era's equivalent of, of video games before they even existed, you know. So, so we've always had this, uh, this urge in children to, to, to play exciting games. But if we're going to use it in our household, we probably want to set things up so that play comes after a time period when the child has something they're supposed to do, you know, be it homework or a chore or just going outside and play or even just spending time with you. And another one real quick is, is, is uh, modeling, you know. You know, parents will often say, you know, do what I say, not what I do. But the kids are more likely to do what we do. So we would want to set that example. Now, maybe some of us aren't playing games, but we might have that cell phone in our hand all the time, you know. Or some of us may be con- you know, checking our social media screens, things like that. So we want to model to our kids that, that we're not letting screens take control of our lives either. And we're using some of our own screen time, a time free of screen time, to focus on interacting with them. Dr. Voss, uh, we have time for one quick call. Uh, David is joining us from Orange, California. David, you're on with uh, Dr. Voss. Uh, Yes, I I agree with you on how we should be able to monitor our kids. It's just because I have already an issue with my six-year-old son. And um, and it's funny because with the whole probability of having them so entwined into these technologies, and or and I already got him, unfortunately, uh, like a Nintendo uh, gaming switch, just because so that way he can divert his attention off the phone of my my wife's phone. And what's going on is is that because first he started just ha- just having him to start with playing games on her phone, and then uh, but then these ads come into play in the in the very beginning of or during the time that he's playing because now he knows how to download a game. Uh, through those little apps, uh, the Play Store or something like that. And and it's like they're so interconnected with these types of uh, technology. And then th- this scares me because what's happening is that 
um, while they're doing this, and and it could be just my fault that maybe there's parents out there who do go to work and they go to. Thanks so much, uh, David. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, uh, Doctor Voss. We just flat out out of time. We're gonna have to pick this up on another occasion. But I really appreciate your perspective. Uh, uh, thank you uh, so much for being with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'd love to talk about it again another day. Many blessings to you. Dr. Kevin Vos, Catholic author and doctor in clinical psychology. Now it's time for another edition of Glenn's Story Corner. And talking football in the Story Corner today with the NFL playoffs getting underway this weekend. Our story today calling uh, called Following Orders. Roger Staubach, who led the Dallas Cowboys to a Super Bowl victory in 1971, admitted that his position as a quarterback who didn't call his own plays was a source of trial for him. Coach Tom Landry sent in every play. He told Roger when to pass, when to run, and only in emergency situations could he change the play. Even though Staubach considered Coach Landry to have a genius mind when it came to football strategy, Pride said that he should be able to run his own team. Roger had a decision to make. Would he allow Pride to rule his life and ignore his coach, making himself the star? Or would he listen to the coach and do what he wanted? Staubach later said, I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. Isaiah 119 says, If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Thanks so much, Glenn. The Patrick Madrid Show is next. <laughs> 